My name is Artis Culver in summer of 62. I traded in my papers for uniform and blue. I took Abe Lincoln's bounty and Union swore to save. What I've seen since that day haunts me to my grave. We were farmers, merchants, clockmakers, and I knew all their names. Some escaping trouble, still others seeking fame. Proud we marched down Main Street while Bristol rang her bells. None could know our destiny to glory or to hell. that face the guns.
Welcome to this week's edition of the Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C, Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And you have been listening to the song Artist Culver from the 2020 CD, Treasures in My Chest by Andrew McKnight. And for those of you who don't know who he is, first of all, shame on you, you should, he's wonderful. To give you an idea, here's a quote from the Boston Globe about Andrew. With a voice reminiscent of Don McLean, McKnight traverses from old-time Appalachian tunes to contemporary folk and blues, all backed up by his dead-on guitar playing. And I can attest to all of that. I've heard him many, many times. I consider him a friend, although we rarely get to see each other. And I am so pleased to have him on the phone this afternoon. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing great, friend. It's good to hear your voice. How are you? I am well in this troubled time. Indeed. We have important work to do these days, we artists, don't we? We do, and when you and I were chatting before going live, you mentioned that uh, you've been doing the kind of, I guess, online music for quite some time, when a lot of people are just starting out now because they can't go out and perform live. Yeah, I've uh, I've been sort of, uh, my response to um, the cost of touring going uh, through the roof basically back in, I guess it was right around 2008, 2009, when it really got to be too expensive to fly out to the West Coast to tour. Um, And I was, you know, there's the car rental and there's bringing all your CDs and your gear and all of that stuff. And and I was sort of reluctant about giving that up, but it's just not practical to be driving out there even once a year, really. And and so I thought, well, you know, there's this there's this thing called Ustream.tv, and I might have to look into that and see if I can uh, stay connected to my West Coast audience that way. And the first time I tried it, we uh, had a, a foot and a half of snow. <laughs> it was late late in 2009, I think. We just moved into this house, and I was like, oh, man, I'm so screwed. We're, there's, you know, there's shows that are getting canceled and all the rest of that. Now might be a good time to try out this vidcasting thing, as, as I called it. And uh, we had a couple hundred people uh, join us that night who were all snowed in all along the eastern seaboard. And I thought, well, you know, there's there's something to this. So... I have literally been vidcasting or what they now call live streaming for over 10 years. And I do it a few times a year. And and part of the appeal for me is I get to be home um, making some semblance of a living without having to to drive and burn up a whole bunch of dinosaurs in the gas tank. And uh, (laughs) I thought, well, you know, this makes this makes a lot of sense. It's a little bit more carbon neutral and nobody else is having to leave home and their their liquor cabinet and all the rest of that either. So uh, there's there's a lot of win win. And and now it seems like the whole world has has caught up to to me in this space and they're all sitting on my porch, uh, metaphorically speaking anyway. Well, maybe not as polished as you're doing it. And I only say that because if you've had basically almost 10 years of, or actually more than 10 years of experience doing it, it must be much more polished as far as your video work and so forth. You know, there's an intimacy to playing in your living room that I really do try to keep, you know, that it feels like you're sitting in my living room as opposed to, you know, I'm on stage in a theater someplace. That being said, I think the challenge for a lot of people is to not have the eye contact and body language of your audience that takes some getting used to 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 glean that from the chat room is uh it's a it's a different experience and you know we all handle 
all of this, uh, you know, um, two dimensional <laughs> video connection kind of thing differently. And for a performer, we, we draw a lot of cues from our, from our audience and a lot of energy from our audience too. And that becomes a, an entirely different, uh, means of, of, uh, being, uh, together and and it takes some getting used to and and some people it's easier than others i'm sure now what do you use camera wise to do the video do you use your iphone or do you have a slr camera or do you have a a special video camera that you use believe it or not i use my macbook (laughs) do you really i have a really nice microphone but the the macbook works fine really the trick about vidcasting for any for any of you musicians who are listening out there the real key about doing this live streaming thing is to have good even light without much contrast and the camera really matters less than than having your lighting um, working okay for you and boy you can see a lot of examples where that's not happening if you have a light bulb anywhere in the screen uh, that you know it just looks like the sun <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know we're we're maybe not used to thinking about that quite so much too it's a it's an entirely different uh, way of presenting your work and yet of course you know everybody from James Taylor and and Mary Chapin Carpenter are all in this same space now where we're all uh, coming to you live from our living rooms and uh, so there's a there's a lot of creativity going on and there's a lot of technology but the the digital cameras of of our time here seem to be um, best when you can keep the lighting even so the MacBook works pretty well with that now, do you use incandescent light or LED lights? I actually am using mostly my room lights, and I'm just being kind of strategic about where they are. So they're not um, behind do, you, in other words? No, definitely not. Yeah. Um, although you do try to keep some light behind you to give a little depth of field. Sure. Um, and I do have one of these LED ring lights here, too, that I'm that I'm getting used to. Unfortunately, for those of us who are a bit on the blind side, needing to read a chat room and wearing glasses, um, lighting does uh, uh, pose some, some other kinds of challenges. But, uh, you know, if that's the hardest thing you have to do in a day, it's still been a good day, right? Yes, and I am guilty of that my, myself in that my computer screen is just far enough away that I can't see it with my reading glasses on or with them off. It's fuzzy either way. (laughs) So I'm constantly leaning in, leaning back, and it just... uh, So I I totally understand if you throw bright light, like in the morning when it comes in the front window of my office, it creates problems when I have my glasses on because it reflects off of it. Right. Exactly that. Well, exactly let, that. Yeah. Well, let's move back to the CD, Treasures in My Chest. It's your most recent CD because it says 2020. The What brought that about? So this has been sort of my, uh, I call it my PhD dissertation, because for the last seven years or so, I've been exploring my family history sort of on a whim at first. And uh and what wound up happening was that the stories that I uncovered and the people that I met um, led to a whole lot of incredible um, experiences and, and connections and discoveries. And uh, not only did I make an album out of it, but I wrote a book there. It's actually a, a companion set. And the, the, the book is 
I guess, part memoir, part how to do this yourself. And and the, the songs on the album kind of um, all really were inspired by some of those experiences. The, the title cut is actually something I wrote after finding a piece of music written by my great-grandfather, Andrew McKnight, and published in 1906, uh, a piece he wrote called Margaret. And I use that as the intro to, to Treasures in My Chest. That's the piano part. That's the piano part, yeah. Played by my sister in Maine. <laughs> ah, whereabouts in Maine? She lives in Winterport. She's a professor at Unity College. Oh, wow. It's a great state. Great state. Cold in the winter. Getting ready for snow this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, as i said to somebody yesterday we've left the threshold of absurdity uh out of sight in the rearview mirror by this point (laughs) yeah so now the songs from the the cd are they all based on reality in other words like artist culver is that someone in your past or that it's some of it made up and some of it autobiographical and you know so Artis Culver's story is really kind of um, fascinating to me. My my interest in family history largely came from my grandmother having us all writing out our Revolutionary War lineage when we were kids. And I was always interested in history and not so interested in it in school. And um, so when I started playing around with this free ancestry subscription back in 2012, I guess, um, I plugged in a lot of what my grandmother had had me write out. And lo and behold, after a few days time, there's this big bush of a family tree stretching back to colonial America and, and England in the 1500s and stuff. And I'm like, wow, this is really wild. And um, and in the middle of this big, beautiful family tree are these two sticks um, <laughs> that that stump off after like four generations. And one of them was this this Culver line. And I, I was sort of mystified by how a name that was so prominent in my grandmother's family could be such a mystery not even that long ago. I mean, she was she was alive when her grandfather was alive, and and he artist Culver was her great grandfather. So uh, I didn't know his first name. I, I was at my parents' house um, for the holidays and watching TV one night. Um, it was – at my parents' house, there's always a TV going, and it depends on which parent you want to talk to at any given time, which room you sort of settle into because, you know, the, the sound of two TVs slightly out of sync with each other will drive many musicians mad. <laughs> so uh, I was sitting sitting with my dad, and I wasn't really all that interested in what he was watching. So I was, I was kind of doing a little searching that night, and I was like, you know, I bet it was my handwriting – my nine-year-old handwriting that really did me in with this. And I'm going to try some different spellings and see if I can get this right. And so when I finally got the name of his, his name spelled properly, the next thing I know, I'm staring at a picture of my three-times great-grandfather, Artis Culver, and he's staring at me from the Connecticut Public Radio website from a story they had done six months earlier. And the story was about this exhibition of photographs that was hanging at the the state library of of Connecticut's Civil War veterans who'd been imprisoned at Andersonville. And I sort of just took a took a deep breath and went, wow, because I, you know, I knew nothing of any of that. And then the next thing I know um, below that, there's an excerpt 
um, from a letter that he had written to the Hartford newspaper in September of 1862. And the reason that I'm seeing his words in this letter is because his letter is in a book. And this book is about his regiment, the, the 16th Connecticut. And the book came out literally five weeks before I'm sitting there searching, looking for him. So I... I he had been at Antietam and his unit had had one drill and they were part of the epic collapse of the Union flank at a key moment and late in the, the Battle of Antietam. And so, you know, I got the book and I, I read the story and I, I live pretty close to Antietam, as do you. I've been there many times, but I went back with some friends um, some months later and we walked their footsteps on the battlefield. And it was it was really pretty, pretty deep and pretty profound to to sort of experience that of knowing that this the visceral details of one of your ancestors stories like that and um he came from the same town that my dad did bristol connecticut and uh on a subsequent visit with my my dad um a couple of years later we we were at the city's memorial to its civil war dead and of course his name is on it and supposedly he's buried there someplace but I couldn't find it. And uh, a young cousin that I met through Ancestry did find the stone. And it was a, just a broken, you know, nothing fancy sort of thing. And I really bothered my cousin, Mike. And, and uh, he messaged me every now and then about, I really wish we could do something about that. And, uh, you know, get him a decent stone. And as I was starting to write the book last last winter, I, I realized that, you know, the, the, the VA probably would would do that they would you know if you gave your last measure for your country they they probably don't charge you anything to put a headstone there and long story short we wound up um veterans day uh in the fall um this past autumn uh commemorating a new civil war era headstone for him and it was it was kind of big news in in bristol and it was the last chapter of the book so artist culver has been sort of my ghostly companion for the last five years well on your website where the banner is you know shows treasures in my chest just to the right of chest is a black and white somewhat faded photograph of someone in military um, garb with a full beard and mustache and just to then there's a black and white of a gentleman with a tie. And then there's what looks like a letter is artist Culver, the first with the beard. And then the letter that you're referring to in that on your website. Um, the picture of artist Culver is that is indeed him. That's how I met him. He's staring at you yeah. just the same way he was staring at me. <laughs> I found that sort of funny to be looking at my ancestor right in the face. You know, it's usually you learn a detail or something like right. that. It's not often that you, 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 you're staring at them when you meet them. And, uh, so that was pretty wild. The The letter is actually another piece of my grandmother's family history that I came into last spring while I was writing the book. And it's actually from a different ancestor writing back to his young, uh, his young love. And he is in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania on his way to who knows where 1200 miles yet to go. I, I guess New Orleans. Um, and he's writing back to her about what the, what the journey is like. And the letter is from September of 1818. Wow. And it's the oldest family artifact that, that I have possession of, I think, um, other than what's coursing through twisted up in my veins. Um, <laughs> isn't it? I, no, I, I was just sort of amazed that, you know, I, I can hold this piece of paper that was written over 200 years ago by someone in my family to someone else in my family. They are my four times great grandparents. Just the, the fact that 
someone decided to keep it so that it could be passed down so it could eventually reach your hands is amazing to me. Right. Right. I mean, how many things do we throw away in our in our lifetime? A letter or whatever. Oh, what do I need this for? Off it goes. Right. It it like I say, incredible discoveries and experiences and connections. And uh it, you know, I I didn't set out to do that. In fact, January last year, I had no idea that I was going to do any of this. I I knew that I wanted to eventually my next album would come largely from this family history because I'd written a few of the songs. But the idea of the album and and a companion book and all of that that went into it um, was crazy. Uh, I wouldn't recommend doing an album and a book simultaneously, by the way, for, for anybody who's thinking that, oh, that sounds like that sounds like fun. It's not. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> well, I was going to ask that question. How long did it take you to write the book? Well, I, I really formulated the idea of writing a full-length book maybe in March. And I had written some of the things that had happened along the way I'd blogged about. So I at least had, had a, a, you know, a record of my experiences about them. And uh, so that was sort of the seeds for, for the book, but I, I really went into it with no direction, no idea of what it was going to come out like or what it was even about or why anybody outside of my family would care. Um, I just sort of thought, you know, there's a lot of inspirational stories that come out of this and, and I really would like to convey them somehow. And maybe that's the, the tack I'll take, but I, 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 all along, once we had sort of the ball rolling to have this veterans day ceremony for artist Culver, I always thought that that, that would be the last chapter of the book. That would be a natural conclusion to the book. So I knew that I had at least until then to kind of get most of the rest of it done. And, um, so I, and we recorded the album kind of June, July, August, late June, yeah, late June, um, headed on into, into early September, I guess, by the time we finished the recording, mixed it for another couple months. So the album was done in December. The book, we really wrapped up the, the second and final set of edits, uh, mid February, I guess. So, uh, less than a year from, from start to finish. Well, for those listening who might want to purchase both, I know the music that you can, they can either contact you and get a hard copy or they can download it. I purchased the, um, online or to get the book, how would they go about it? You come to my website, andrewmcknight.net and right on the front page, you'll see a uh, three minute trailer video about the project. It's kind of interesting, sort of an overview of the whole thing. Um, there is uh, any link from my from my uh, homepage will take you to Treasures in My Chest page. You can get the CD or the download along with the book or the EPUB version. Um, and you can get your book signed by the author who would be <laughs> grateful to walk it up the dirt road to the post office and send it to you. <laughs> you can do it all right there. Or, of course, um, you, can, you can do it online at Amazon or, or what have you, too. Well, I have to commend you for... I mean, your career as a singer-songwriter and performer, but to tackle a book, I know maybe three people personally who have written or are in the process of writing, and they have all told me that it's much more difficult than they ever imagined. So I commend you for 
taking the time and sticking it through to actually be able to publish it. Thank you. It is a lot of work. It's, it's, I don't even know how to describe the internal transformation, the, the, the sort of um, metamorphosis that one goes through when, you know, there's a, there's a chapter in there, for instance, about my great grandparents raised me and my kid. And one of the great mysteries in my family has always been how my grandfather and his siblings just wanted nothing to do with each other. And I, I, you know, I knew next to nothing of their families. And part of this process has been through the DNA test and all that. A bunch of us second cousins who share this great grandparent ancestry, the songwriter who is also a fiddler um, from Scotland, um, and and sort of us kind of stitching together the family again at our level, you know, uh, a century later, and building our own relationships and meaningful relationships. And sort of trying to understand, uh, you know, to, I wrote about the experience of, you know, my dad from his dad and all that, and sort of analyzing how much of this really came from my grand, great grandparents. But as I put together their story, I, I realized that there was some analysis that I really had to do in the book about, you know, there's a pattern here, this, this pattern of estrangement and outright abandonment. Um, is just kind of, you know, I'm sure our family wasn't unique like that, uh, but to sort of process it in a bigger picture kind of way, I didn't set out to do that. That was that was like I had to really sit with that for three or four days after I had finished that chapter and started looking at it again and editing it. I was like, you know, there's there's stuff here that I really need to to kind of come out and 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 tackle a little bit. And it's fascinating. It's been fascinating for some of my cousins too. Um, I have to say that. You know, it helps to put a lot of things in perspective. I never thought my ancestors would teach me so much about my life. I I have to say that. I had no idea when I set out to do this. That was not on my radar. Well, speaking of your life, how did you get into music? In other words, what's your musical journey like? How did it start? If If it started like some people in their late 20s or early 30s or whatever, what were you doing before and all that stuff? Well, my dad played in a band. Um, he was a school teacher. And so in my childhood, that meant that you had to do something else on the side if you wanted to make enough money to have a, a mortgage and a family uh, in eastern Connecticut. And so he uh, he played in a band and they played weddings and bars and all that. And they rehearsed at our house. So from the time I was a toddler, some of my earliest memories are of hearing bands picking apart harmonies to, you know, the the pop songs of the late 60s and early 70s, you know, Beatles and Crosby, Stills and Nash and all of these things. And and so I was around it my whole life. And by the time I was 12, I guess, I really uh, I really sort of had the I, I want to be part of this club. And of course, when you're 12. I don't know about you, but for me, it was feet three sizes too big and <laughs> acne some new place every day and an hour long bus ride each way to show it off. And, and just that really <laughs> awkward uh, time of your life. And and I, I, I decided I really uh, I really needed something to hide behind and a guitar seemed like a good thing to do. So um, and, and I wasn't very good at it, obviously, um, for a long time, uh, but the the thing that really sticks with me is how the musicians in my dad's band they sort of 
you know, treat you different. You know, you're, you're a member of this club, you know, you, you're, you're one of us, you speak this language and it doesn't matter if you do it well or not. We're, we're musicians, we're music people. This is, this is who we are and you're one of us. And at a time in my life when I really needed to have that sort of uh, validation and worthiness, um, it was really pretty powerful medicine. And um, I, I, I will say that one of the things I've been, very fortunate to have been blessed with the career that I have um, in music. And uh, one of my my givebacks, my essential um, non-negotiable givebacks is to treat every young musician that I come across with that same grace and encouragement um, because I remember how much it mattered to me. Well, if I recall one or maybe Two of the times you performed at the now defunct Brewers Alley Monday Night Songwriter Series, you brought a young person with you, if I recall, or maybe oh, it may, or maybe it was yes. to the Sunday Songwriters. I don't remember. Um, I I definitely came with one of my uh, songwriting students. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and in fact, I just saw that she uh, she finished her master's degree and is getting ready to start her PhD. But at the time, I think she was maybe a sophomore or a junior in high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, um, she was taking some songwriting lessons with me. And uh, sometime around then, she she came, we did a, a recording at the studio, um, with like four of her songs. And she got one of them on the NPR show, Car Talk, oh, wow. which I thought was really cool. I was driving home from a, a weekend in Philadelphia or something one one time many months later and just flipped on the local left end of the radio dial and, and I hear this familiar sound and I'm like, I think that's my guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes, definitely. Uh, 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 she was one of the ones, her name's Sydney Murray. And, yes, uh, Sydney, that's correct. Sydney right. did some, has written some fine songs and, and hopefully she's still continuing to do so. Well, did you jump from that 12-year-old, somewhat awkward youth like we all were at that point in time and stay with music and it became a way to make money or did something else happen and it was a side thing? No, actually, um, I, I lucked into uh, a working band when I was a sophomore in high school. So I was like 15 and I'm playing guitar in bars and the occasional wedding and stuff almost every weekend for, uh, for a goodly while. And, uh, so I had to get better. <laughs> <laughs> My job was basically to strum the guitar and, and don't screw up and don't call attention to yourself. But you know, there's no way that you're not going to get better if you're, if you're working at it like that. And so, um, I, I wound up playing in bands to put myself through college and grad school. And it was when I was finally done with grad school, I was maybe 27, 28. And, uh, I said, all right, that's it. No more smoky bars. No more getting home at three in the morning. No more hauling heavy amps around and all that stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to play music for me now. And I had really gotten exposed to a lot of the, the sort of contemporary folk movement while I was in grad school. I lived in Northampton, Mass for a year. So I was right down the street from the Iron Horse and you know, here's folks like Sean Colvin and John Gorka getting, getting their, you know, really building their audiences at that point. This is like around 90, 91. And uh, I just thought, wow, you can, you can play an acoustic guitar and actually do a lot of stuff and write songs and sort of be your own band. And, and this is really cool. And, um, you know, as much as I 
tried to avoid that becoming a career choice as opposed to something one did on the side for enjoyment or money. It has 25 years now been my career too. So um, either I'm not too smart or uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I got caught in a current I couldn't swim out of. Well, did you do anything other than music for a while? Because I think it says on your website that you're some sort of an engineer for a while. Yeah, I actually have four college degrees and never took a class in music. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the oddities of life, right? You you take the long and winding road. I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry and a master's degree in environmental engineering. And I was was an environmental engineer for about four years. Now, did you enjoy that? I did. And and frankly, uh, you know, it wasn't that I hated it. Uh, it was just that I was doing two things at once and I wasn't doing either one of them to the best of my ability. Yeah. Um, but the the thing of it is I didn't know anything about doing business and being in the environmental engineering field in the mid nineties meant that you understood a lot of things about business because the business contracted like right after I started working out of grad school, um, they laid a bunch of people off because for the first time the industry contracted. And so all these companies that had been sitting back waiting for the phone to ring with big multi-million dollar contracts were now having to go out and hustle and compete for work and floundering about at it some too. And I, I sort of, you know, I watched this whole thing about marketing and business development and all that stuff. And I thought, hmm, you know, and frankly, I've I've found that to be an invaluable asset in this career because really to focus on the the people who are receiving this thing that you want to sell them and why do they want it and what makes them want it and how does it connect to what they need and what what they may not even know they need um it's really an important perspective for an artist to have even though we create art in a in a sort of pure vacuum of creativity, the the bottom line is to make a livelihood as an artist, somebody's got to want it. And uh, I, I think that the big lessons for me about that were, were essential to me being able to do this. So how do you, or how did you go about getting people to want your music? You know, I think that... Ultimately, we don't have as much control over that as we'd like. Um, what we really need to do is conduct research. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an iterative process, right? You, you write a song and you see how people react to it. And you write another song and you see how people react to it. And In my environmental engineering days, I spent a lot of time crawling around in the most foul places of coal-fired power plants in Appalachia. And I really got a chance to um, meet people. And and I've always been sort of engrossed in stories. And I think for me, the, the biggest thing was the stories that moved me and bringing them into a musical environment and finding that they moved other people um, was sort of the, you know, I, I think of myself as a musical cinematographer, really, um, more than a songwriter, because my job is to get a movie rolling in your head. It doesn't have to be the same movie that I see, but by doing that, you're engaged with it on an emotional level and perhaps a sensory level too. And to me, that's been the more important thing um, is to to really learn how to use those things in an in an authentic kind of way as a storyteller. But you know how you present a story is everything. Well, you are very, very good 
at. In fact, you're one of the better ones of everyone who I have heard over the last 15 years, or maybe even 20 years, at introducing a song and setting the stage for the song that is not necessarily the same story as the song, but a story in and of itself self which leads into the song so that we who are sitting in the audience get pulled in before the first note is even struck. Yes, absolutely that. Did that take a lot of trial and error? Um, great question. Um, I, I guess I've sort of... I've sort of understood for a long time that there's really, to be in an audience, one must be compelled to stay in the audience and to stay engaged. And frankly, the thing about performing is that it's really like theater, whether you want it to be or not. And the theater might be as simple as, you know, somebody who's very shy and looks down at their feet and then occasionally actually looks up and makes eye contact. There is theater to that. And to tell a story in a way that has you sort of sitting on the edge of your seat. And then as the music starts, you use all these layers of, of um, sensory engagement to make the experience deeper um, I think that there's probably a lot of that that's learned over time, but there's some of it that's kind of instinctive too. And I, I will say that I spend a lot of time studying lots of different sort of performing art forms for what is it that moves me about it. Like I tell my young songwriting students, you know, one of the best things you can do is take one of your favorite songs and rewrite it. You know, you want to get under the hood and figure out what it is about that song that's really compelling you and, you know, use it as a template and, and what you'll come up with will be different. You won't be rewriting the same song anymore. You will have used it as sort of a springboard to something else, but you learned what it was that moved you, what it was that compelled you in the first place. And I think that performing is an underappreciated art for that because that theater of how things unfold, how details unfold, the pregnant pauses, the humor, all of the, all of the elements of it and how they fit together. There's, there's a flow to it that, that happens kind of organically for some people and in other ways it's really staged and it can be effective either way. But to understand how it works is really important. I think um, any time that I've been asked to study anything um, seriously uh, and uh, some sort of rigid form, that's not really my thing. So I, I'm going to guess that a lot of what I do falls more in that organic luck seat of the pants kind of um, <laughs> camp. Well, it, having listened to you and watched you and also other people from an, a non-performer audience member's standpoint, I don't think they understand how much work it is to perform because it looks so effortless to the performer who's good at it. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. It becomes like breathing. And, and frankly, there's a certain comfort level of muscle memory that goes along with that of body language too. And, you know, you sort of, I, I, I try to not tell the same story the same way every time um, because I think it keeps me fresh and on my toes to, to um, 
twist the angles around. Um, and sometimes just things happen that make things relevant in a whole new way too. But um, there are touchstones. There's sort of a, a series of stepping stones to get from one place to the next. And it's, it's good to have some command of those, but to also develop the skill of being able to kind of roll with, you know, when you're, when you find yourself speaking in a slightly different direction, how do you weave that to the next touchstone? Um, there is definitely a lot of work to that. And, and as I say, I'm kind of lucky that I don't have to work as hard at that as some people, and I should work harder at it than I do. Now, do you find that sometimes, because as a performer, you basically have the story you want to tell, and I mean the in-between songs, not the actual songs, that the audience's reaction or something that might, may have happened that day will change, and you've alluded to it, how you say it. Does yes. Does that ever, let's see, what do I want to ask you? Um, does it ever get you off on a tangent and you suddenly realize I'm off on a tangent and I can't find my way back? <laughs> um, there's always a way back. <laughs> <laughs> now, the the way back is maybe not the thing that, um, you know, leads you back to the story, but leads you to the song. Um the you know the old adage about it's not the it's not the destination it's the journey yes um sometimes by having that journey that that happens sort of spontaneously where we're all reacting to the same thing you know i i think that sometimes as a performer our job is to say out loud what people are feeling not necessarily what they're thinking or what they're saying but to, to hit this place where, you know, we find some common threads in what we're experiencing and, and how that leads into the next thing. And sometimes I, I'm one who likes to make a set list for a show, you know, very shortly before going on, because I like to think about that whole, the whole flow of how, how we're going to go with this, you know, where we're going to land. I'm pretty sure I know how we're going to start. I'm pretty sure I know, but how are we going to get there in between is, is, um, uh, a sort of uh, the currents change and and sometimes the stories go in a completely different direction and it happens a bit spontaneously and that's okay because that's what that moment led to so taking that thought and moving into recording your songs because your published music is very nicely put together thank you and Knowing as a songwriter that, you know, all of our songs start with either guitar or piano. For me, it's a guitar. I would imagine it for you. It is, is well, we're sitting there and it's just us, the mm -hmm. instrument and a pen, or maybe we type on a computer. How do you then take that song that you may like, or maybe a wife or a friend says it's a great song, you don't like it, and then take it into the studio and be able to arrange it so it comes out hearing us hearing it and saying, wow. Well, I think that for me, performing it um, is an, an essential part of that process. And I've almost always performed stuff a bit before I go into the studio with it. So I've had time to get to know it. But I, I will say this, uh, a good song to me is like a, a car. 
And it doesn't matter what kind of car it is. It's a nice car. But how you arrange it and who you arrange it with is kind of where you drive it. And to me, when I go in the studio, that is my opportunity to show you um, some of the roads that I like to take this car on. And it's how I want you to at least experience that framing um, that, that I envisioned around it. And a lot of times it sort of happens organically in the studio. It's like, you know, I re I've done a lot of things where I didn't really have a clear vision of it when I went in and I recorded it, you know, got the basic stuff down and said, oh, you know, this would sound really cool with... I don't know, mandolin or Native American flute or whatever. And then that like changes the direction of it some. And and the next thing you know, you've you've made a, a piece of art where the song is at the core of it, but the, the the production of it is a piece of art unto itself. Now from that from a production standpoint, do you have a set group of performers or musicians who you prefer to use or to be able to call upon to bring them into the studio? Or do you use whoever comes into mind at the time? Um, some of both. It it really depends. There are people that I've worked with for a long time and have a, a long and trusting relationship with. Um, certainly my, my longtime bandmate and friend, Les Thompson. Um, Les was one of the founding members of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and we played together over 10 years um, in Beyond Borders. Um, the last couple of years, he's been on the road playing with his old bandmate, John McEwen, uh, pretty full time. So we haven't, we haven't played much together, but, um, Les is one who has a completely different perspective on stuff, which leads to creative collisions. And those creative collisions actually produce sort of, um, the sparks that might need to make something really take a new shape that neither one of us had envisioned beforehand. Um, Lisa Taylor is another one. Lisa's a, a wonderful singer and songwriter. We've been friends for 25 plus years, oh, at least. And um, she's also a fabulous drummer. And I really, on Treasures in My Chest, I really, uh, I leaned heavily on Lisa, not only for the drums and not only for her daughter, Rachel, playing the cello um, magnificently, but I really trusted her to have my back about the songs because I really felt like I was too close to them and they were too new. And I really didn't have a sound sense of, Hey, is this any good? <laughs> you know, is this, does this make sense? Is this like, you know, does this go on too long or should I have developed this more? And I really like hounded her a lot about that. And I also, I, I handed over the development of the harmonies um, pretty much to her and then responded to her ideas. And so she was very uh, much a creative partner as well as a, as a recording partner on this one, more so perhaps than, than I've leaned on anybody in a long time. So yeah, I definitely have my go-to people. And then sometimes it's like, well, I need something unusual and who do I know who's good at doing that? And it would be really cool to bring them in. But there's there's a certain, I guess, human chemistry that, that draws me to people that makes me want to have them be part of my art um, in some way because of what they are and what they do. Now, do you prefer to record live and maybe fill in with a mandolin later or something, or do you prefer to track everything? We did most of the ensemble 
core for Treasures in My Chest live, much as I had done with something worth standing for um, back in 2008. Um, it was sort of the core band laying down the basics and then go back and overdub. You know, I, I think I redid most of my guitar parts because I played them on an electric guitar with no amp so we could be in the same room together so it's not bleeding all over the the drum tracks and everything um so I kind of like to have the the basic stuff have that live feel and, and it's good and bad um there are sometimes challenges with the feel of timing and stuff like that a little bit you know the chorus gets a little bit faster and the verses slow down but that's that's kind of the music breathing too and if everybody's breathing like that together then it's it's meant to be like that and then that just means in the overdubbing you you pay attention to it and you go with it well there are many people who believe that every person who records must perform to a click track so they can bring in someone who lives a thousand miles away and just do it online or however they would do it and record the, but what I find is when you, like you said, when the music breathes, it's very much more like, well, it's a polished version of a live performance is kind of the way I describe it. And it gives a certain energy to the music as opposed to like what a lot of what we hear out of Nashville, especially since that's kind of the musical Mecca now or the headquarters is as good as it is, it's almost sterile. There's a, a life to music that breathes. And to capture that, whether it's with or without a click track, um, really, you know, it, it's the feel of it can be good or bad either way. Or and not good or bad, but, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a... Um, a place where just like, oh, that feels great, you know? Mm -hmm. And to to get to that point, this, we did a couple of the tunes I know we did to with a click track while Lisa was playing the drums. And she was the one who had to listen to the click and none of the rest of us did. We just listened to her. Right. Um, and then there's a couple where the chorus really needed to be able to breathe a little bit more than it did. And I said, ah, you know, let's just, let's hack the click track out. Let's just play it live and, and see how it, how it goes. And both worked. It was okay. It was just a matter of kind of following your instincts, I guess, to, to, to really, you know, it's about creating a mood with a production. It's really about um, all of the color and the richness and the texture and everything that, that comes from other instruments and other people's contributions uh, to the recording. I think that the, the, the trick to that is to really have that happen in a way where everything is additive rather than colliding with each other. And that sometimes means there's one other instrument with you because nothing else really fit that well. And other times it means, you know, we could put a few more layers. I'm sure that there were at least two songs that I might have played four guitar parts on on Treasures in My Chest. <laughs> and then there's other things where it's like one take. Well, that's because you, when you're talking about playing four guitar parts, that's because you're a very good guitar player. Well, I, I, one would 
Thank you. I, I, I would also say that I don't always think of everything right until I've heard how it's all going together. And then it's like, oh, oh, if I did that, if I added that to it. <laughs> so it, I think some of it is sort of uh, the creative side more than the guitar player side going, oh, it would be, I think it would be really cool to add that in. Like Web of Mystery. Um, there's four electric guitar parts on that. And some of them are just really faint harmonic things. Some of them are little droning open E string things with something else going on and there's a dirty power chord part going on and then the main strummed part and how they all wind up fitting together along with John Carroll's accordion and organ it's like this big thick tapestry of sound and it sort of to me enhances the mysteriousness kind of the, the lyrics are really about you know things that you can't see and things that you can't touch and I was really trying to kind of conjure that up and and I had no real idea about how we were going to do that it was really more responding to it as it as it built well that brings up a question about guitars most of the times in fact maybe every time i've seen you perform you've performed with your martin i know that you're a, a an owner of a fair built guitar marty fair mm-hmm. i saw somewhere and maybe it was in the background of one of your videos a Loudon guitar. Oh, yes. So what do you, how many guitars or what guitars do you own, acoustics now, and then which one do you play at home? Which one do you take into the recording studio if there is any kind of a hierarchy? Oh, yes. Different guitars have different jobs. They do. No doubt. Um, used to be when life was simple and I had one CD and one guitar. Um, <laughs> 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 Not so much that anymore. Um the the Loudon was part of this whole Treasures in My Chest project. Um, when my parents took the DNA test and we discovered that my both of my parents had heritage in Ireland um, and Scotland and that um, we had living relatives in those places, my parents decided that they wanted to go. So my sister and I and my parents spent 16 days in a tiny minivan rattling around on the wrong side of the road in foreign countries and hoping that the nuclear family didn't achieve vision. Um, And we had some incredible and amazing experiences, one of which was meeting some of my dad's family in his ancestors' hometown of Newtonards in County Down in the north of Ireland. And um, they gifted me the Loudon. It had been something that my cousin and her husband had had for 20 years. And they, um, they said, we can always get another one. They were made here. And we want our American singer-songwriter cousin to bring home something from his homeland. And it turned out when I looked it up that night on the uh, Loudon uh, company website that um, looked up the serial number, it turned out that the guitar was actually made in Newtonards um, in 1994. So uh, somebody gives you a gift like that, um, it changes your life, mm-hmm. <laughs> frankly. And every time I picked up that guitar, new sounds would come out of it. So I kind of keep it in an Irish tuning. I keep it in Dadgad. And I wrote probably a third of the songs for Treasures on My Chest on that guitar. Um, so it has its role to play. Um, I also wrote one about receiving the guitar called The Gift. And I put that in an even deeper tuning. It's like an open C modal tuning kind of thing. And it's nothing but guitar and voice. 
So the the Loudon goes with me everywhere. Um, my Martin MC sixty eight still goes with me everywhere. I use that on my little town on the new record. Um, the Fairbilt, of course. Um, uh, what, what song? Is, I, and I know I recorded. I, I recorded a lot with my Strat that I've had since I was fourteen. I, I, that, this is another whole story unto itself. So my Stratocaster got a big workout on this album, and then I also have a, a Gretsch Resonator guitar that I use for both uh, bottleneck and lap slide, and I played. Uh, a tune each way on on the record too so all five of those guitars were front and center somewhere on this project if someone said to you whether it's your wife or a friend or whomever and said andrew we have some bad news for you you can only keep one guitar which one is it going to be oh don't know how i do it <laughs> <laughs> let's make it easier you're allowed to yeah. okay then then probably the loudon and the martin okay because um you know they all have different sounds and different characters and different personalities and uh the the sound of them i, I really feel like i'm starting to understand so much more about music and so many different aspects of it some of it kind of even metaphysical and the guitars all have their their place to to their roles to play in all of that and it's sort of like i i travel with a cast of of characters uh, you know i call it one man theater but really i've got four uh, four fellow actors and uh it's the the four acoustic style guitars the strat stays home well a little bit different and more difficult maybe to perform with especially if you're performing in intimate venues an electric guitar can sometimes be overpowering yeah i would think and 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 i don't um i i don't really experiment with playing it solo all that much um i could uh, i just haven't yet maybe that's the next phase maybe my next album is a is a sort of solo jazzy electric guitar kind of thing who knows i'm just glad i don't have to worry about the next project just yet well that brings up a question how often well do you have a plan for how often you want a project to come together so that you can release it to the world i used to and over the last decade i really didn't do a whole lot of studio recording because the the death of the cd essentially was really changing the whole business formula for being a touring artist. I mean, selling CDs and merchandise and all that used to be a quarter of my income any given year. And so as that really collapsed, especially in the, the latter half of the last decade, um, I really focused more on um, capturing live recordings and making them available as downloads. And it wasn't really until Treasures in My Chest came along and, you know, the whole project developed, you know, sort of as a as a big entity, uh, you know, the book, the album and everything else. Um, that's what really drove me back in the studio. That being said, I do already have the next project planned out because last year I sort of fell into this project with Mac Bailey, who's a wonderful singer, songwriter, uh, used to be part of the hard travelers here in the DC area. And he's now doing music therapy, working with veterans who are learning to cope with PTSD by um, using songwriting as a vehicle to help 
reframe their stories and their perceptions of, of their experiences and, and sort of rewire that trauma. And it's been really powerful stuff to, to spend time one-on-one with, with some of these vets. And so the next album is most likely going to be an album of songs that I co-wrote with, with some of these, these folks. Well, looking at your website and you've got 10 recordings and it appears that on average it's about every two to three years. There's a couple spots where it may be four or whatever. And that just because your mind would say, or maybe your active songwriting would give you enough, or it just turns out that it's every two to three years on average. Um, I think that it's, I'd like to say that it's in my first 10 to 15 years of playing, there was definitely a plan, you know, about every three years, two and a half, three years, um, is about enough time for enough new material to incubate and get out on the road and get road tight and all of that and really get to know the songs to the point where it's like, I I see how they all fit together. I, I definitely am still an album maker. I really think about how songs fit together in a, in a mosaic, in a, in a complete whole, as much as the individual songs have to be good on their own. And I think that over the last decade or so, it's been more a case of, oh, well, we've got a, we got a recording crew here or a film crew here and, and, you know, might as well take advantage of that opportunity. And it's kind of worked out like that more sort of uh, by circumstance than by plan. I think now I'm in a phase where, you know, this this album of songs with vets, for instance, I'll probably, as, as long as we get to be able to go back to working, you know, in person, one-on-one with vets, um, I'm, I'm hoping that I head into the studio maybe late next year, early the year after. And that's a, that's, you know, kind of a 2022 project. So looking forward, I mean, right at the moment, we're stuck in this coronavirus um, social distancing. It appears, based on what you're saying, that you're maybe better off than many performers who it kind of took them by surprise where you had been working slowly over the last eight or ten years to, to um, so you didn't have to tour as much. But where do you see the next five years for Andrew McKnight? Great question. Um I'd like to say I could look into next week and see what's going on. Because <laughs> really the, the times that we're living in at the moment are, are pretty, uh, pretty hard to predict. Um, and truthfully, I tend to have a, a bit older audience and they are among the more vulnerable um, elements of the population. But they're also the folks who you know, as they get older, don't like driving at night as much. Um, and so the real big catalyst for me has been the fact that they're having to learn how to use all this technology that allows them to come over to my living room now, like I've wanted them to be able to do. Um, and, and we're getting over this big collective learning curve as a, as a culture. And I think that that's, you know, going to be the way of things for me for a considerable element of, you know, from now on, really, it's already been as far as when I get to hit the road again and actually step on stage in front of an audience um, in person. um, 
boy, you know, it, it could be this fall. It could be 2021. It's really hard to, to predict and plan. So for me, that means, well, okay, I've got projects. I've got things that I, I want to do. I've got, you know, the book and the album, the national PR campaign for that's really just getting started. So I'm going to be busy for a while with, with all of these other things. And, and, you know, sometimes the best plan is to sit back and wait and see how the dust is settling and then make a plan. And I think that's my plan right at the moment. I'm going to keep making art. I'm going to keep being uh, online, sharing it with people um, face-to-face, both in shorter free formats like Facebook and YouTube Live, as well as longer full ticketed concerts that one can take in online. That's going to be, I'm going to keep doing that for the foreseeable future. And we'll just see what shakes out about actually getting in the van and loading four guitars in it and driving to, you know, Texas or Colorado or New Hampshire or something. Uh, When, when the, when time and uh, circumstances allow, I will certainly be ready to see people in person. That's for sure. Well, I wish you all the best with that. The um, again, we you just mentioned it. We don't know what the immediate future brings, but you've had a successful career so far, at least from myself looking out at you and your career. And I wish you the very best. And I am very pleased that you took the time to to sit down and chat on a little drizzly afternoon. The uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to catch up with you. It's nice to be able to sit and talk about the stuff that we're passionate about, right? You know, the that's the one of the reasons I started doing the podcast was I felt the need or the void of not being able to chat with other performers, songwriters, musicians, however you want to classify them. I missed that. Mm-hmm. When you're running shows like I did for many years... I get two-minute, three-minute snippets. Right. It's a lot of work. Well, it's not. I, I don't <laughs> mind the work so much, but it's like I was always left wanting more. Right. So yeah. the podcast was to do just what you and I have done for the past hour, is to find out more about the person who I'm highlighting for the week. And you've been a terrific guest. And well, just, you. just so, you're, you're most welcome. And just so you know, and unfortunately, you're not going to be able to hear it because I'm, we're going to finish the phone call and then play the song. But you mentioned the song, The Gift. Um, that's going to be the song that after I say goodbye to everybody, they're going to listen to that. So we started off with, you know, Artist Culver. We're going to finish up with The Gift. But thank you again, and I wish you the very best, and I do hope that we get to see each other in person sometime in the near future. Yes, absolutely to that, my friend. Absolutely. And to all your listeners, thank you so much for tuning in and supporting uh, uh, us creative-type folks, finding creative ways to share creativity with you in a time when we need it more than ever. Um, trust me, we're here. We're, we're, we're doing stuff, and we're innovating and creating and and sort of uh finding the silver linings and and blessings in all of this and one of them is that uh, we're able to see each other face to face no matter where we are in the world and uh, i hope that people will come by and catch one of my concerts online real soon it would be lovely to sing for you and lovely to share some more stories with you too very good and best to your family thank you and And to you too my friend thank Thank you. you so great to chat with you and hopefully soon That was uh, Andrew McKnight.
talking about his musical journey and his family and his family tree and everything. And we're going to finish off the show with the song that I just mentioned, The Gift by Andrew McKnight. The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com, or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Now let's listen to a little bit more of The Gift by Andrew McKnight. Lines that fill my head A spirit conjured melody Mystically surrounding me Like a king returned his father's soul